I have always been a sucker for a good story. Doesn't matter to me whether it's a story written for adults or it is my favorite movie of 2018, which was Coco, a Pixar movie. Have you seen that? Oh my God. Like, I went and saw that movie in the theater three times. Three times in the theater. I paid, you know, $41 a ticket to go watch this movie three times in the theater. I loved it. It was just beautiful. Wove things together. And I think that's why, even from an early age, I was always drawn to those Bible stories which had a great narrative arc. You know, the stories where there's like incomprehensible odds and then somebody somehow gets over it, like David and Goliath, or a, a remarkable story of transformation like Saul into the apostle Paul. I love those stories. But this little sermon series is actually about acknowledging that the deepest and most transforming work of the Holy Spirit in my life and in yours will be in the smallest details of our lives. It's not going to be in a singular experience or one grand pivotal moment. It's almost always in tiny little nuances, in the details, in the fine print as it were, that will begin to really change us day after day after day. That's what this whole series is about. The story that Scotty read for us so well from Matthew chapter 14 begins up in the region of Galilee. Now Jesus spends his first three years of his ministry according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three that are called the Synoptic Gospels. John's a little different. He has Jesus starting out in Jerusalem. Jesus is ministering there in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee in small towns like Bethsaida and Capernaum where he likely bought a house and lived along with Peter, James, and John and Andrew. In this particular story, before what Scotty read, we learn that Jesus has had a really challenging day. At the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus has received the word that one of, we presume, his closest friends, John the Baptist, his cousin, has been executed. King Herod saw him as a threat. His message of critique toward the empire and King Herod, using his power, took his life. It says that Jesus withdrew in a boat by himself, we presume, to grieve. Jesus was a human like you and me. He had emotions like we do. He experienced things like we do and he felt them. The crowds, of course, really didn't care that Jesus needed a little time to grieve. Maybe they didn't know. They press in on Jesus, and it says that Jesus had compassion, so he taught and he cured. And as they got hungry throughout the day, he even performed that radical miracle of feeding the thousands of people. There was so much food that there were 12 baskets left over, enough for, say, the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of what must have been a very long day, physically and emotionally, Jesus tells his disciples, drop me off on the shoreline over there. I'm going up by myself to pray. And while Jesus is up there by himself, presumably praying all night long, the disciples find themselves in the midst of a storm that rose suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. Now the gospel says something interesting, that Jesus, in the original language, appeared to them in the fourth watch of the night. And what I learned was that in the first century, they divided the night into four quadrants of three hours each. From 6 to 9 p.m. was the first. The second would be 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. The third one would be 12 a.m., which should be 3 a.m., but the preacher wasn't paying attention when he made the slide. And then the fourth one, which is the one in which Jesus shows up, was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Jesus sees them on the Sea of Galilee, struggling in their boat, in the middle of a storm. Now, I got to visit the Sea of Galilee a number of months ago in January, and I was there, and there are now, of course, as you would expect, 
like any large body of water, all kinds of development, some farming and commercial, others tourist-based around the Sea of Galilee. And at nighttime, you can see those artificial lights line the shore all the way around the whole thing. That wasn't the case in Jesus' day. In fact, one artist took a picture of the Sea of Galilee at night, depicted here, illuminated only by the natural light of the God-given moon and the stars in the sky, and you can't hardly see anything. And this is important in this story, because when Jesus is descending from the hills, making his way toward the shoreline to assist the disciples in their struggle, Jesus miraculously begins to walk out on the water. And when the disciples look up and notice this figure coming toward them, they say, it's a ghost. So we know by that, they don't recognize Jesus by how he looks because they exclaim, look, it's a ghost. So if they don't recognize Jesus by what he looks like, surely they'll recognize him by the sound of his voice, right? No. Because they don't recognize Jesus by the sound of his voice, Peter speaks up and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus had spoken up and said, take confidence, take heart, be, be, be of courage. Don't be afraid. They don't recognize him by the sound of his voice because Peter says, well, if it is you, then command me to get out of this boat. I have to wonder why Peter asked uh, or thought in his mind that it would be a good idea to get out of the boat. I mean, this is a career fisherman. Not that you have to be a career fisherman to realize that you'll drop like a rock if you get out of a boat in the middle of a storm. He gets out. To his credit, one time being impulsive paid off for Peter, and he begins to make his way toward Jesus. A man who had deep respect for the sea gets out when Jesus says, Come on. I had an idea this week that it's the first time reading the story I've ever thought of before. What if this was Peter's personal fishing boat? Now you can visit in Israel the north side of the Sea of Galilee. There's a kibbutz there, which is a Jewish kind of uh, commune, so to speak. In it is a museum of a boat that they unearthed in 1986. This was dated, carbon dated back to be a first century fishing boat. Now we have no idea as to whether or not it's tied to Jesus and his disciples, but the fact is that it's the kind of boat that Jesus would have gotten into, that his disciples would have used to earn their livelihood as fishermen. It's not very big. It was submerged in the mud, and when the water was receding down, two brothers that happened upon it could realize there was something odd about that structure. Structure contacted the Department of Antiquities in Israel, and they came and unearthed it through an unusual engineering process, and it's now on display. I've seen it. I've stood near it. It's only seven and a half feet wide. It's 27 feet long. Of course, the main, mail, main mast for the sail no longer exists. But I'm standing there at this boat imagining 12 grown men being tossed about in what is essentially a small John boat in the first century. And it made me wonder as I was reading the story this week, man, what if that was Peter's boat? What if he had been the one to take the axe and cut down the tree to take that, that, that big trunk of the tree and divide it into planks and begin to bend it and hammer it together? What if he found the tree that would be carved into the mask and mast and he would carve the oars himself? What if he stitched together the sail? And here's my point. Peter or the other fishermen, John, James, or Andrew, in Peter stepping out of this, would have been leaving his own self-constructed means of security to step out into what was certain peril. Why would he get out of that boat? Maybe 
if he didn't recognize Jesus by what he looked like, and if he didn't recognize Jesus by the sound of his voice, maybe he knew that true faith is experienced when we step out in trust into that which is not our own personal means of security and in trustful relationship with God. Jesus says, come. Peter obeys. You just read a few more words past when Peter steps out and you realize that, you know, he steps out there, he's walking on water, and he's got to be like, look, guys, no hands, you know. And almost immediately, his focus goes off of the one who's calling. Maybe, maybe it was a wave that crashed and it splashed him in the face and kind of, maybe it was a swell in the ocean and he lost his balance, who knows. But he takes his eyes off Jesus and starts noticing, like, something's not right about this. I'm standing out here on the Sea of Galilee. This is fairly dangerous. Feeling a little bit insecure now. Maybe I should go back to my own means of security that I built with my own two hands. It begins to sink. And it's then when Jesus, it says, who was close, reaches and grabs him. He says, why didn't you have confidence? And lifts him up. They return to the boat. And all the disciples exclaim, you're truly, you must be the son of God. Many of you have heard this story before. And I want to suggest to you today that while this is a powerful, miraculous story in which we are amazed, I'm probably not going to be given the opportunity to get out of a small fishing boat and walk on the water toward Jesus, literally. The power for the story of the story for us in the 21st century is in its metaphorical power of teaching a real truth, which is this. There are two perspectives in life, only two, and they are to focus on our circumstances or to give our thoughts, our attention upon the one who stands above them. Just two perspectives, that's it, that will guide our thinking and our worldview. Either focus on all the mess and threatening stuff around us or focus on the one who stands above it all. That sounds so simplistic, but it is much easier said and described than it is practiced. I'll be honest with you. I, as a pastor who is thought to be, for many people, a professional Christian, I have as many challenges and anxiety-inducing things and circumstances to work through as a normal person does. And I begin every day by carving out some time. Sometimes it's as little as 20 or 25 minutes. Sometimes I get a full hour where I can read scripture and pray, not studying for a sermon, not preparing for a Bible study. That's just me being a child of God in my relationship. And what I've learned is, this is true. I can either focus on my circumstances or I can begin to turn it over to God in prayer. Now here's what that looks like for me. I will just name, God, I've been really anxious about this relationship with this person. I feel like things are not yet the way they should be. I'm trying to figure out if there's a way I can be a peacemaker and go and reconcile. Um, I'm worried about it. And while I'm expressing it to God in prayer, my mind is thinking about that person or that situation, whatever it may be, I will sometimes find myself saying, because God, what I really want to say to them is, look, I know we had our differences. And then I'll just begin to shift into this imaginary conversation, this monologue with a person who is not present. And I will find myself thinking about, okay, they could respond that way, in which case I should be prepared to say this. And what's happening in that moment is I'm going from, God, I'm giving this to you, to, actually, let me hear that back just one second. I'll give it back in a minute. 
But really what I want to do is think through all the possibilities and the potential outcomes here because I'm kind of a strategic thinker after all and I kind of want to avoid pitfalls, this and that. And I'll take it back and I'll find myself five minutes later paying total attention to the bellowing sea and the wind that is gusting in my face and I'm sinking. I am being totally swallowed by my circumstances because I took my eyes and my attention and my thoughts off of the one who stands above them. It is so easy to do. Think about it with me. When the outcome of the medical treatment for you or somebody that you care about is in question and they can't assure you of anything, what do you do? You Google it. You get on WebMD. You look up every possible, you know, other diagnosis that it might be. How many people this treatment worked for? Maybe we should go and test this clinical trial. I should even I find myself reading bio, you know, biographies about doctors in Minnesota and all this stuff. And late into the night, depriving myself of sleep, worrying myself, creating anxiety in my spirit until my eyes are bloodshot and my body demands rest. Or, or, I can listen to the words of that prophet 700 years before Jesus who said, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now that's what you read when you want to give it to God and go to bed. Or maybe it's when that season of life comes when you've had the financial reversals and you're feeling the pressure and the bank account, you're wondering if those checks are going to be made of rubber and bounce. You're watching the savings count just dwindle down one after another, month after month over time. The stack of bills gets a little bit higher. The list of broken things in your house and your car is getting a little bit longer. You don't know how you're going to make ends meet. You're holding your breath, hoping that you're going to have some windfall of relief and that there won't be just one more thing that comes up to wipe you out completely. And it's so easy in a desire to plan and be wise and what can I do here and there to get so caught up in that that we forget the Apostle Paul wrote to a community in Philippi in chapter 4 and said, my God will meet your every need out of his riches and the glory that is found in Christ Jesus and lift my perspective up to the one who's standing above those circumstances. Or, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, I suspect you can, you're stressed out about your job you take it home with you and while your kids are telling you about their day, you're sitting there just nodding your head and there's absolutely nothing about your presence that is with them. You're living somewhere else. It's another deadline. You're feeling overwhelmed. You've got a demanding boss who doesn't seem to understand what they've asked of you to do. You've got to make it through another tax season. And the residual effect of this sometimes is that we feel that our worth will be found in how well we perform in response to that. And yet there's an old rabbi walking out upon the waves who says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Friends, this happens in the tiniest and most nuanced of ways. It is a single thought that we either give toward our circumstances to create anxiety and stress and turmoil in our spirit, or to say, God, I don't have an answer for this. I really don't. I don't know how it's going to resolve. But I'm going to trust you that you're going to give me the guidance for the next step. Not the hundredth step. Not six weeks from now, but for today, I'm going to do the next right thing and believe that you have knowledge of it all. 
that's a detail worth paying attention to. A few years ago, I had a friend that I served on a nonprofit with who's a medical doctor, very accomplished. He's about 30 years older than me. And uh, his wife of 30 plus years was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She fought valiantly. She fought um, with a Christ-like spirit. People in the church rallied around them because they were some of those people that just knew everybody and everybody knew them. And when the news came out about her treatment, everybody was touched and moved and they wanted to help. People brought them meals. People would send them encouraging cards and assure them of their prayers and they really meant it. This person and his wife had just served in the church in every way they could. They raised all three of their daughters to be Christians within the church and their daughters were Christians living a life of faith after they had left their home. I remember, this is how entwined and important this family was to the church where I was serving. I remember going to visit with the family while the wife was having a procedure done at, a, at UAB downtown. And I walked into the waiting room to find the husband, the three daughters, and three other ministers with them already. People prayed. And tragically, she died. Prayers weren't answered the way that we wanted them to be prayed or to be answered. We do believe as Christians and have a hope that she had an ultimate healing and that she is in the wider and loving presence of God in some way that none of us have ever fully experienced. But that didn't diminish the incredible loss and grief for that family. About a year and a half later, it was December, and I was preaching an Advent Christmas sermon about Jesus being described by the prophets that the Messiah will come as a prince of peace, a sort of ambassador of shalom, to take what is wrong and to begin to heal it and for the presence of God to be with us. And at the end of that sermon, I noticed my friend was sticking around. And after most people had left, he approached me and said, I want to tell you, I began to get emotional. On the morning that Nancy died, we were there in her hospital and we knew it was her last, last moments. And my daughters were there and we were just holding her hand and praying with her and telling her that we loved her, thanking her for being the wife and mother that she had been. And I will tell you that I, throughout all my years, 60 years, I've never felt the peace of God more tangible and real than in that moment. How is that possible? Explain that to me. Describe it to somebody. You can't. There are two perspectives. It begins in the details. To keep our minds on the circumstances that would swallow us up like the sea or upon the one who stands above them. I want to pray for us right now. God, as I'm telling a story from your word and recounting the different ways that it made me think about how life can overwhelm us. You are looking down in this room upon individuals or families that have their own wind and waves that they're battling with right now. You know them intimately. God, my prayer is today that you would send the gift of compassion which comes from your Holy Spirit to reassure them that you can help them not only endure but prevail above all the feelings that would seek to rob them of peace 
and contentment and joy. May it be so, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church.